and welcome to the Women in Archaeology podcast, a podcast about, for, and by women in the field. My name is Chelsea Slotten, and I'm your host for this episode. On this episode, we're joined by Julie Wesp, a professor at American University. She is a bioarchaeologist who studies systems of sex and gender in Mesoamerica. Completing the panel are Emily Long and Kirsten Lopez. Thanks so much for joining me tonight, everyone. Happy to be here. As always. Yeah. Thanks for having me. And we're excited to have yeah. you. So we're, we're super excited. Super excited to have you, Julie. Um, I know we're going to spend the next 50 minutes or so discussing your work and what you're focused on, but if you could just really quickly give like a 90-second introduction to who you are so the listeners have an idea of what to expect, that'd be great. Sure, yeah. So I am a bioarchaeologist. So um, like Chelsea, I study human skeletal remains from archaeological contexts, and I've mostly done my work in Mexico, uh, working in the pre-Hispanic and colonial period. Uh, and the types of questions that I'm really interested in asking are um, how people have lived their daily lives. So I specialize in analyses of activity and indicators of um, activity that we can learn about from the skeleton to try and understand um, what people were doing with their bodies in the past. So um, I draw on embodiment theory a lot, talking about materiality and how uh, the social becomes material and we can learn about it through uh, skeletal remains. Um, and I'm now also currently working on a project in Bogota, Colombia. So I've expanded out into kind of broader colonial Latin America as well. Yeah, so just... Um so I love your work. Also, in case everyone uh, isn't already aware of this, Julie is a spectacularly awesome and amazing person, and we should all learn from her all the time. <laughs> um, okay. But just really quickly, I'm not sure all of our listeners uh, know what embodiment theory is, so could you kind of recap that quickly? Yeah, sure. So embodiment theory is... Um, thinking about and theorizing how you experience the world through a body. So um, through different sensational experiences, emotions, um, perceptions like uh, heat or touch or taste, um, but also um, the kind of the main concept is proprioception or the uh, idea of being within a body and how your body is both a subject and an object in the world at the same time. Wow. Is that getting connected to, and sorry, listeners, more archaeological theory. Um, <laughs> is it in connection it's to... okay. Sarah's not on the episode today. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. We love you, Sarah. Um, is, it, is there a connection to um, phenomenology that kind of like you're trying to experience it? Or are you just literally just trying to get just yeah, at that individual? Yeah, definitely. I well? mean, I think that... Like, um, Phenomenology started this kind of idea of embodiment in, in archaeology. I, I mean, I don't know for sure, but certainly a lot of people read Merleau-Ponty and other phenomenologists. But, you know, they also take a very um, non-specific perception of the body, which, uh, as I'm sure you've discussed in the past on the podcast, usually meant a male body. Um, so, mm -hmm. you know, in the 80s and early 90s, mm. a lot of um, feminist anthropologists and archaeologists have um, drawn on other social theories to say, well, we can't think about experience from one single perception because bodily difference is a reality. 
Um, and even people who share the same quote unquote mm -hmm. aspect of identity category like woman doesn't experience the world the same. So we need to individualize it as best we can. Um, and one of the ways we can try to attempt to understand how people experience the world in the past is through your own body, um, which is kind of that phenomenological perception. Um, but again, there's all these other social and culturally historically situated issues with that, um, that we're never really going to know how, um, how we experience something is exactly the same as someone else experienced it in the past. Yeah. And for any listeners who are interested in a mm -hmm. kind of good overview of what gender archaeology is, Emily Long wrote an amazing blog post for our blog. It's got to be about a year now. Um, it is one of the more popular blogs that people click on, on what is sex and gender archaeology. So you can go check that out because it's great. <laughs> Shucks. <laughs> um, so when you're looking, using this embodiment theory, what are you looking for then in the human remains to try to suss that out? Because I'm sure it's got to be hard to like find little markers of these types of things to figure out what were they doing and how do they live? So what are you looking for? Yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, the great thing about skeletal remains is that you can tell so much about people's lives um, that it becomes physical material aspects of their body. Um, and, you know, the old saying that you are what you eat um, <laughs> is certainly true. Anyone who studies isotopes will tell you that. But um, I'm here to say you are also what you do. So the activities that you do in your life uh, leave physical traces in bone that you can then analyze. Um, looking at things like um, what we call entheses, which are the actual places on bone where muscles attach to um, with tendons or ligaments keep your bones from dislocating when you're doing different activities. Um, and all of this causes biomechanical stress uh, that forces new bone to be added or old bone to be taken away. And there's a number of different methods you can use to uh, figure out what muscles were being used and how often they were being used. Um, and then you kind of get that um, somewhat phenomenological perspective, right? Where if you say, okay, if they're using their whole right arm, but only their left forearm, you know, putting your body in that position. And you can't see me, of course, on a podcast, but I'm actually doing that. Um, you can try and think, okay, what are they actually doing, right? What kind of movements mm -hmm. would result, what kind of activities would result in these types of movements? And, I, and a really famous one um, from a bioarchaeological perspective, and this is, um, some of it is changes that you're seeing to the instances of bone. Um, but in some... Um, what we would call now British uh, populations, but at the time they weren't in United Britain. Um, you see evidence of osochromialis, which is a failure of fusion in your scapula, which is caused by an over, or can be caused by an overdevelopment of the muscles surrounding your shoulder blade when you are um, still growing. And basically the, the muscle grows between where the bones should be fusing um, and you see that a lot oh. in uh, actually Welsh populations. And for anyone who knows some, some Welsh history or uh, some Welsh lore, a lot of um, 
lore talks about how amazing Welsh archers were, but a lot of history also talks about how many, um, many of the archer um, bands is not the correct word. I'm struggling with uh, word recall. Troops. Maybe. Troops. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Yes. You know, uh, <laughs> British forces were often Welsh and you primarily see it on the, the right hand side. And when you think about pulling a bow, mm -hmm. if you are right handed, you're often going to be drawing with your right hand. So every time you're drawing that bowstring, that repeated action of um, pulling a bow that could have a, a draw of 50, 60, 70, 100 mm. plus pounds, you're building muscle. And if you do that when you're really young, you get this malformation of our lack of union in your scapula. And not everything is that clear cut where you can say, mm -hmm. look, I found this cool thing. Chances are it's from archery. Um, it is also worth noting that osochromialis can be genetic as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's that's the hard thing with this type of analysis is everyone wants it to have a one-to-one -one correlation where you can say this person was doing this activity, um, and you know, and and that's kind of a not that's the the hard part with science, right? Is finding definitively that it's this and not something else, mm -hmm. um, which you always have to be careful with in in archaeology because again, we don't necessarily know all of the different activities that they would have been doing in the past, but we can at least try and um, imagine them. Yeah. I always think there's like a fun one that I tell my students um, is about how like ancestral Puebloan women must have been like absolutely ripped because yes. they were grinding corn all day with uh, manos and matates, the, the grinding stone and then what you're grinding, the big stone you're grinding against it and how like the, the, Epiphyses. <laughs> I just want to say at the joint. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All the attachments. It was like, yeah, they were buff. And my students always get a kick out of them. Like, yeah, I mean, you can't just be like, you can't, it, you can't necessarily say like women were only doing this and men were only doing this, but you can see there are a variety of activities. And one of them was grinding corn based on the bones. And I always think that's so cool. And I'm sure you see tons of those kinds of things in the record. Yeah, and there's actually been a number of studies in the Southwest um, that document that. Um, and even, so the other type of method that I use is something called cross-sectional geometry, which is a bit more technical, mm -hmm. um, but it uses uh, computed tomography images or CT images uh, to look at actually how bone is organized and how much cortical bone you have, oh, okay. um, which and is another way of, is. and cortical bone is the, the hard bone, <laughs> um, not the spongy trabecular bone. Um, but both of those two different types of bone uh, react to biomechanical stress in different ways. So one helps to prevent your bone from breaking and the other one helps to make your bone flexible. Um, and both of those are really important and having a combination of them gives you a really strong skeleton without a very heavy body, right? Because the other thing that you need is a body that you can actually move around in. Um, so when they did these studies, um, looking at things like grinding grains and agriculture versus other types of societies that might be hunter-gatherer societies versus um, when you see a change in the organization of labor, say with colonialism, you, you get a lot of that different reorganization. But um, yes, the short version is um, ancient people, especially ancient women, were much were much more buff than we are. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, one one of the examples that I always remember um, is the California women. Oh yeah, 
because a lot of the burden baskets that they would use or that they would carry would have, they had the forehead strap. Right. So they'd have like a hundred pounds that they're carrying basically with their neck muscles. So one, one of the markers that, um, if I remember correctly, that's often used for gender identification would be the mastoid process. Yes. The mastoid process. Um, and those tend to be larger in men, assuming that type of muscle is more pronounced um, in men and less in women because you don't have the muscle development there. But in certain populations where you have women doing these large burden carrying activities, that tends to change the structure in the neck. And I always wondered, and I think there is a study about women carrying um, burden baskets on their heads and how that would change like the the musculature of the neck um, but more towards the base of the skull instead of so it'd be like a slightly different marker but a similar yeah so that's actually a really good segue to a um, book that julie co-authored it's a bioarchaeology of sex and gender um, yeah, co-edited. Co-edited, exploring yeah. sex and gender and bioarchaeology. Yeah, um, which talks about the importance of contextualizing what you're seeing in the archaeological record to the place that it's occurring, not just the, the sex gender system, and realizing mm-hmm. that there isn't really a, a universal sex gender truth. Um, and it's a, it's a really great book. Do you want to talk about it some? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Basically, I think everything Julie does is great, and I'm just going to keep using the word great. <laughs> episode. <laughs> you can throw an excellent every once in a while. Uh, no, but um, I forget who is just uh, speaking now about that example with the um, baskets. But, uh, you know, so what we asked, um, the the book Exploring Sex and Gender and Bioarchaeology just came out last year, 2017, with um, University of New Mexico Press. Um, and what we uh, myself and Sabrina Agarwal, who's the other co-editor, we asked um, a number of different bioarchaeologists to take this idea of um, sex and gender and how it is often employed um, both as a data category, but then also as an analytical category in our interpretations of the past. Um, and uh, specifically for bioarchaeologists, how we then um, theoretically change the way we talk about these different categories, as well as um, there's a number, the kind of second half of the book looks at um, specific case studies of if you then start to look at these categories differently, how is that going to change and influence your interpretation? So um, for example, with the um, carrying the basket, Right. Without um, understanding this specific historical context, um, a lot of these women um, might have been identified skeletally as male. Right. For having this large mastoid process. Um, You know, certainly that's not the only feature that bioarchaeologists use. It's much more complicated than that. Um, But at the same time, um, you have to try and uh, Put it into the context of of that specific situation to say what are the other factors that are affecting our categories. Well, and that just kind of goes back to the I think of it as a widespread um, archaeological understanding that you should have um, like cultural context, mm-hmm. historical context to whatever it is. Right. And you're talking about 
every once in a while I meet someone who that's like a novel idea to them. And it always like makes me tilt my head. Um, right. <laughs> it's always been something I've been taught. Yeah, like you can't use the same model for everything. Like, yeah, <laughs> no, you know, people are illogical and created things for just the heck of it. Yeah. So, right. Surprise. Well, or, or that our gender and sex categories are going to exist the same way for all different times and places, mm-hmm. which is just you know, taken as um, a given oftentimes in the way that we make our interpretations. And that's not something that we've ever talked about on this show before. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. <laughs> We're not particularly opinionated about that kind of stuff at all. <laughs> oh, no, we have the least opinionated people in the history of the planet. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone kind of should know that is far from the truth. Yeah. <laughs> well, that sounds fascinating. How many authors were you able to get involved with the, with the book? Um, so there's um, myself, my co-editor, and then we have um, seven or eight other authors. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's a pretty good selection that, again, you know, a lot of um, my colleagues, oh, she has her book right there. I, I did. <laughs> I forgot to bring a copy of my book. Um, you know, like I said, it's broken down into these theoretical approaches, um, in the first part and then, um, does case studies across all different times and places in the world. So, um, looking at not just, um, you know, studying sex and gender, but how thinking about your data differently would affect, um, health frailty in the past or affect dental disease. Um, we have a really great chapter on the way that um, childbirth is presented in biological anthropology as this dilemma between being bipedal or giving birth. Huh. Um, and uh, another great chapter on um, the use of mercury as a treatment for syphilis um, and how that affected mm-hmm. men and women differently in um, Europe in the 17th and 18th century. Yeah, and, and Julie had a really um, great chapter as well <laughs> in that book, which I would like to talk about on the other side of the break. Awesome! Hey, this is Kirsten again. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear so far, visit us on our blog, womeninarchaeology.com, where you can read about women in the field, current issues in archaeology, and find back episodes from over two years of women in archaeology. You can follow us on Twitter at WomenArchies, contact us via email at womeninarchaeology at gmail.com, and we always love to hear from our listeners. However, if you do like what you hear and wish to support us, you can visit our Patreon account. Links to that and organizations mentioned in this episode can be found in the show notes. Thanks again for listening. Hi, and welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. On this episode, we are joined by Dr. Julie West, who has been talking to us a little bit about her uh, work in archaeology. Before the break, we were discussing a book she co-edited with Sabrina Agarwal. Um, And I would like to hear a little bit more about her chapter, which was titled Embodying Sex Gender Systems in Bioarchaeological Research. Yeah, so um, before the break, you know, I was kind of explaining the goals of the edited volume. And in my chapter itself, it's in the more theoretical section, and it really kind of formed the basis for um, my later dissertation work. But here, you know, I, I asked the readers to question not just 
how we talk about sex and gender in the present, but how that then um, gets translated when we try and shift our focus to the past um, and to ask readers to be wary of reproducing a binary system that we tend to think about or have thought about in Western cultures in, in the 20th and 21st century. So to do that, I kind of talk about the traditional methods um, of sexing, which um, we mentioned a little bit uh, earlier. There's uh, features on the crania, which are often characterized as males um, being larger, more robust than females. Um, and then uh, features on the pelvis, which um, again have more to do with changes that associated with needing to give birth. And so women tend to have um, broader, wider uh, pelvic inlets and outlets, and that um, results in different features on the pelvic bones. But when bioarchaeologists actually do this analysis, we don't just write down male or female. Um, our standard method of analyzing is um, using a five-point scale. Um, so in our analysis, we actually acknowledge the fact that there's a range of variation from what we tend to call probably female to probably male. Um, and so in that sense, as um, my colleague Pam Geller has mentioned, um, we're not actually um, scoring how male they are or how female they are, but rather how confident us as an observer are um, in being able to determine one way or another, um, which then kind of complicates the issue of how we use these categories in our interpretations, which um, pretty much any archaeology article you've ever written translates these five categories into two, right? Male and female. Yeah. And then other archaeologists um, who are conscious of it uh, use these categories interchangeably with more of a social category like gender. Um, so male and female become women and men, or even they'll mix them up. So they'll say males and for one category and then women from the other. Um, and so partly it's asking um, scholars to be really conscious of uh, the different categories that they're using, um, but then also to think about um, what do we do with the category that is typically what we call number three or um, translated as question mark, indeterminate, <laughs> unidentifiable. No, mm -hmm. um, no one really talks about this, um, but as you're being trained, um, if you can't provide a sex an a category analysis, these individuals um, get excluded. Huh. Uh, so if you have a three, if there's not the correct elements to provide a sex uh, estimates, you don't have a crania, you don't have a pelvic bone, um, they're just excluded from all of these other um, analyses that then subsequently get done. Um, so asking, you mean like talking about a like if somebody was talking about the population as a whole at from some site, they just wouldn't include the unidentified kind type of. They might they might include it in the first table as um, twenty five um, unidentifiable sex, um, but in subsequent categories when they're saying men do this, women do that. Um, those oh, 25 will be excluded. Okay. And this can be especially problematic when that unknown, unidentifiable category um, can get particularly large, sometimes because of preservation bias, sometimes because of collection bias, mm -hmm. sometimes because um, 
just a population that's less sexually dimorphic mm-hmm. than, uh, you know, whatever population you were trained on. But sometimes the statistics that you, you will look at when they'll talk about the differences between, you know, biological males and biological females, and then you look at the number of unknowns, and sometimes that number of unknowns can be larger than either the biological male or biological female categories, or could be larger than the difference between them. Uh-huh. And could be- interpretation. And one of the problems um, Mm -hmm. that I remember in my training on this was very much the fact that the standard way that things were sort of uh, created for the standardization process, like why these things are different, is specific to Western culture and in the United States especially. There's like, what, a couple of case populations that were used to establish what differences would occur when sex was known. And so what differences may occur, and this kind of goes around back to what you were mentioning earlier in the discussion, Julie, was that the cultural context Mm -hmm. is lost. And you're basing a lot of the interpretations of sex on the current Western social norms. So again, going back to the example, like burden baskets for women or other things that would you know, show up or not show up in some populations, but not in others are not necessarily biologically. Right, exactly. And um, like you said, a lot of those um, documented collections that were used to create these standards have specific histories of collection Um, The male-female ratio of those are often skewed as well. And we know just biologically that uh, populations across the world vary differently. Um, And so it's, you know, it's it's problematic to not only um, use categories that are based off of Western standards for other places in the world, but also um, pushing them back into the past where we don't know what other kinds of factors are influencing um, difference, right? Like like what kind of labor they might be doing, which might change the robusticity of the bones um, and these different uh, features that we're using to, to make these skeletal analyses. So I always, you know, in my writing, I always try to be very specific about um, skeletal sex, meaning a category that I'm creating based off of indicators from the bone. And then I actually use sex slash gender, um, which is another kind of theoretical idea from um, Judith Butler's work, who is um, a queer theorist, uh, who says, you know, her her premise is that uh, our categories of difference are always already being described through a cultural lens. So how we describe sex as binary is a modern construction in and of itself um, that really is only for the past hundred years. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, the Cure's book, Making Sex, is, does a really good job of um, kind of outlining that history. Um, so these categories that we think of as being quote unquote biological are in fact cultural um, because how you describe and create categories um, are also socially and historically situated. That's one of the most concise explanations of Butler I've ever heard in my entire life. <laughs> Good job. There's also a really great um, cartoon uh, with yeah. cats. Yes. <laughs> Butler by cat. Yes. yes. <laughs> 
Um, Judith Butler is a phenomenal theorist <laughs> who can be a little bit difficult to understand. I think I think that's an understatement. <laughs> <laughs> We're very tactful here. Yes. <laughs> but so, I mean, I, I think, um, you know, in thinking about how we do our research, then, you know, I'll, I'll say it loud and say it proud. I'm a feminist, a feminist scholar. Um, and yeah, you're in good company. <laughs> yes. Um, and to me, throwing out the outliers, throwing out the individuals who didn't fit these categories that we want them to fit. Um, I just wasn't comfortable with doing that um, with my research. And I also wasn't comfortable with doing the traditional, um, you must split your data up into two sex gender categories before you do your research yeah. into the, the males are over here and we're going to compare them to the females over here. Um, because then you're only looking at that as the most important difference um, in your data. Uh, and oftentimes that's not the most important or, or the, the um, category that is influencing um, the organization of your data. Uh, but if you set it up like that, that's yeah. the only difference you're going to see. Mm-hmm. When going back to like intersectional ideas, even if gender is influencing your data, the impact you, the gender of the individual will have our biological sex of the individual will have on kind of their lived experiences will vary according to, um, you know, social standing, uh, economic means, ethnicity, religion, um, any other category you could kind of think to define a person by, the experiences differ. It would be really interesting to take some of these earlier studies, or not even just earlier, but (laughs) some of the population studies that I've seen and restructure them to include those individuals that have been pulled from the final analysis and see how that changes interpretations. Mm I mean, that's something that would be really interesting. That would be neat to see because then you're including the other dimensions in there rather than splitting everything by interpreted uh, sex for that population. Yeah, and, and I think there's a reason scholars don't necessarily always want to do that because they like to get to the end of their research or the publication and be able to say something. And if what you're saying is, well, I think based on current data, this is true, but my margin for error is huge and could um, completely invert what I'm saying, you know, that's unfortunately a lot less publishable. And I have a big problem with the fact that it's difficult to publish negative results, um, both in terms of publishers being willing to publish negative results, Mm -hmm. as well as scholars being willing to submit negative results for publication, because it's really important. Um, But I think until we address that bias in in publication, we're probably going to continue to see academics who who don't necessarily want to address the unknown and the possibility for more categories. And, and so would I? Yeah, the, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, I definitely echo your sentiment on the uh, reluctance, yeah. I guess is the best word, to submit or publish negative results because those are sometimes the most important. Oh, yeah. And it also helps eliminate too many duplicate studies that aren't knowingly being duplicate studies. Like if you're going to be looking at the same thing, it's good to know what other people have actually done and to see what their results were. Otherwise, it's it's kind of like, you know, as far as the scientific process goes, it's moot. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's it's hard to really interpret if you don't have 
something to compare against that has already been done if something has been done already there's it would be good to have those things behind you so that you can try and you know move forward or progress the the thought and the science of it at least that shows the inherent value of you know um looking at older research and kind of going back to one of our older episodes, you know, utilizing older collections and seeing what analysis you can draw that um, maybe hadn't been done before. So yeah, it's, it's frustrating when you can't have these like negative things being published, but at least, you know, for older reports and whatnot, that at least shows that there are numerous studies that can be done and the projects are endless <laughs> students out there. Yes. Don't be deterred. <laughs> There's always something to study. Or restudy. <laughs> or restudy, exactly. And, you know, so that's what I wanted to do for my um, dissertation work. I, I kind of switched to a collection from the colonial period, from Colonial Mexico mm. City, which was um, actually from a, a CRM project in the early 1990s. And um, some work had been done on it, but it was mostly... Um, you know, just a previously excavated skeletal collection. And uh, it's associated with a uh, the first hospital that was established for the local indigenous population, um, which was in 1553. Um, in, was that by the Jesuits? Uh, Franciscans, actually. Um, Franciscans. But in 1553, it was officially granted crown sponsorship. So uh, it was paid for by the Spanish crown. And uh, what's interesting about it is, you know, when they were building a new metro line um, in Mexico City, they knew that the hospital had been there and they were hoping to uncover, you know, some of the architectural foundation. Uh, and they at first didn't find it. And then, um, as always, they <laughs> found it. Um, and for most archaeologists, then they find bones and they, you know, freak out. Um, for bioarchaeologists, we get excited about that. Um, <laughs> but um, they ended up uh, excavating over 600 individuals who Whoa. had been buried beneath the floor and in between the walls. Um, the walls? That's yeah. Um, like hiding them or just being like, <laughs> there's a nice space over here. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> oh my um, gosh. Uh, mostly in these large kind of ossuary type um, uh, burial settings with many, many individuals buried on top of each other. Um, likely from the 18th century, most of them. Um, and, you know, as we know from the historical uh, record that uh, coincides with um, an already replanned um, building of the hospital after a fire, um, it also coincides with a number of different um, disease epidemics. Uh, so it's possible mm -hmm. that, yeah, they, they're like, here's an open hole and we have all of these dead bodies and we need to put them somewhere. Um, so they were not expecting to find them. And the construction company, of course, was not so happy about having to delay uh, building the metro for two years. They never are. Um, no. <laughs> it's like um, someone makes a remark, if everyone likes archaeologists, I'm like, except construction workers. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, pretty much anybody in development kind of hates archaeologists. Right. <laughs> 
It's like, sorry, guys. (laughs) But so what I did, you know, kind of uh, to follow, you know, to finish up our discussion on on sex and gender is we're talking about a time period in history where for the first time you have the influx of um, completely different people to this part of the world. You see a change in the social and political and religious powers um, in this part of the world. And all of that is going to be influencing um, how people live their daily lives. Um, and, you know, in particular, in this case, whether um, you have to work, whether you're being forced to work, um, the, you know, the, what I did for my uh, postdoc um, was look at a, a subset of this collection that actually have African heritage. Um, about 250,000 enslaved Africans were brought into Mexico, which um, is not typically thought of as a place where um, there are people of African descent, but there is quite a large um, Afro-Mexican population to the present day. Um, and so, how, you know, thinking about intersectionality as all of these different aspects of identity coming together Um, I had to look at my data differently. Uh, And so that's what I did. Nice. Yeah. And I think that you've done a good job looking at data from different perspectives. This does bring us to the end of our second segment. So we're about to go to break. But when we return, we will talk a little bit about some of the other uh, intersectional aspects of archaeology that you can look at and the bioarchaeology of care. During this break, Why not check out the Women in Archaeology blog and see the types of posts we've been putting up over the last two years. We've been discussing many different types of topics from surveys that have been done in the field on what archaeologists are experiencing, all the way to just random subjects that interest us at this time. You can also see the backlog of episodes, and it's also a way you can contact us about your interest in the episode, and any topics you would like us to cover sometime. Again, thanks for listening. Hi, and welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. On today's episode, we've been joined by Dr. Julie West, who's been talking to us about her work in bioarchaeology. Um, For this, our third segment, we are going to move away from uh, sex and gender, not entirely because intersectionality is, as always, a thing. But you published an interesting piece on identifying care in the archaeological record a couple years ago that I know Emily had expressed strong interest in. So uh, (laughs) take it away. Yeah, so um, I was part of an edited volume that um, was exploring this idea of care in bioarchaeology and um, is edited by Lorna Tilly and Alicia Schrank. And Lorna Tilly, uh, whose work is amazing, she's an Australian bioarchaeologist, um, developed this method called the bioarchaeology of care. Um, And it's a a number of different steps that starts with the skeletal analysis of different indicators um, and how we might talk about things like pathologies in the past. Um, And then with that, move into interpretive steps of trying to understand what different kinds of conditions in the past would have actually resulted in in terms of ability and um, 
or different ranges of ability and what kind of care would be uh, needed in order for uh, people to live to the age that they lived at in the past. Um, and so her work uh, is really fascinating. I encourage everyone to read um, uh, her first book, which outlines this method. Um, and then in the edited volume that I was in, um, again, they asked a number of different biologists to kind of take and expand the theory of this method. Um, and in my chapter, I, you know, I kind of approached it uh, differently, um, thinking about how um, all of this, the skeletons that I was um, working with were found associated with a hospital. So um, in that sense, they died while they were seeking care at a hospital. Um, so we know that someone was caring for them. Um, but again, thinking about the, the specific historical context um, of the 17th and 18th, 16th, 17th and 18th century um, in the Americas, you see the establishment and creation of all of these different hospitals to quote unquote care for the indigenous population. Um, and what I, you know, really questioned in my article was these people are still dying. So what kind of care was mm. the hospital actually established to provide? Um, because another one of the main, you know, forms of um, the colonial project was evangelization and they're run by different religious orders. And so I was kind of questioning this idea of, of were they, was it a front almost um, of really trying to care for these people's souls in the sense, evangelize to them, provide um, the last rites before they die to try and save their souls while really just, you know, giving them palliative care and trying to keep them as comfortable as they can as they die from smallpox. Oh, is that the primary uh, cause of death you were seeing? Um, a lot of it likely was infectious disease, but... Um, in bioarchaeology, we have this issue, what we call the osteological paradox. I don't know if you want to explain it, Chelsea. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, basically anything that's going to kill you quickly <laughs> isn't going to show up in your bones. Um, okay. Your bones take, you know, years to, to remodel. So if there's something that you're seeing on someone's bones, chances are it's something that they lived with not necessarily something they died of. And that's not to say that the, the two are incompatible. Um, you can certainly see evidence of tuberculosis uh, on skeletons and the person could very well have died of tuberculosis, but something like smallpox or the plague, typhoid fever, cholera, those are all going to kill you so quickly that it's not, unless you end up with a, a mummy, you're really not going to see evidence of okay. that. Um and yet those are the people we call healthy when we do our analyses. Right. Oh, because they don't have markers on them. And um, right. It's kind of the opposite. Wrote a really interesting piece on Sharon, Sharon Dwight. Yeah. Um, on health frailty and the the plague. They kind of addressed exactly that. Mm -hmm. um, and she's actually um, one of the authors in our volume on sex and gender, too. Yeah. But, you know, mm -hmm. signs of pathological signs that are indicative of long-term illness might not necessarily mean that the person who survived that illness probably had to be in otherwise very good health to have survived. 
long enough for it to show for up, it to show up on, on the bones. bones. Yeah. yeah. That, of course, is yeah. not always true. Sometimes, um, like, battlefields or things, you'll see traumatic, injuries, injuries, traumatic yeah. injuries where you're like, oh, look, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I know it. Like a, a sword to the face. I think they died of oh, that. Man. Yeah. Well, and one of the things, if I understand the history of nursing correctly, uh, my partner's an RN, so I, I have a mm-hmm. decent understanding of it, mm-hmm. um, or at least I like to think so, <laughs> um, is that hospitals weren't actually used for healing right. until sometime in the, like the early 20th century. Hospitals right. were generally places where people went to die. And so that what Julie was saying about palliative care and, you know, helping people be comfortable on their way out the door, so to say, is was basically, you know, what they ended up being. So people, it, there's a reason why uh, there's a negative feeling around hospitals. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's a lot of it. It's just historical stigma because that's where people went to die. If you were mm-hmm. going to a hospital, there really wasn't any hope. <laughs> <laughs> was the the idea and so it makes sense in that you know you're you're not going to see a lot of healing per se because that wasn't something and maybe the it, it you know some of the early stuff was probably closer to the late 19th century i be, believe bellevue up in uh, new york i think um was one of the early hospitals that had started to to turn that tide away from just being a place to right. die to trying to, to get people healthy again so if, if that's the case, so Julie, with your work, I, I can see then like if you have a huge population of or uh, a large group of skeletal remains in the building, so lots of people died and you got the historical record showing there were these epidemics, um, do you know why then indigenous populations went there then? Um, if it really wasn't meant to be a place for healing, why would why would people go there then and, and not stay with their families or whatnot for care? Was it kind of a forced thing by colonial mm-hmm. powers to go? Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the kind of interesting questions that I try to um, explore in in the chapter. In the the one thing that we know from the the collection of skeletal remains is that there's very few old adults in the population. Older than um, 50 is old adults for bioarchaeologists. Sorry to (laughs) anyone out there. Who's older than 50? <laughs> oh, but that's not surprising considering that today, the statistics say that the 50s is your most dangerous decade because any of the, you know, mutations show up, congenital issues that mm-hmm. may show up later in life arrive in your 50s. And you see people with high blood pressure, with heart issues, with stroke issues, and they survive now because if you can identify them with some medications and treat them, you're okay. Right. Um, but... Right. I mean, so the, you know, the issue we always have as archaeologists is, is the sample bias, right? Did we just not excavate where the old people were buried? Um, and, and this is a CRM context, mm. so that's certainly possible. They were only able to recover the remains wherever um, they were going to be building the metro tunnel. Um, the other question that I pose in the chapter is maybe this is um, telling us something about who are the people in the society that are going to the hospital to seek care. Um, and maybe uh, this is, again, this idea of institutional care, a place where you go um, when you're sick 
uh, is not something that was necessarily common in pre-Hispanic cultures, particularly, mm-hmm. um, you know, the Nahua-speaking cultures or the Otomi-speaking cultures um, in the basin of Mexico during this time um, had a very different conception on the health and the body. Um, and it, depending on the condition, um, it was much more tied into a kind of realism a real magical, mythical type of understanding of how disease occurs. Um, so, you know, one of the examples I talk about is um, drunkenness was prescribed based on the day that you were born in the, the what we call the 260-day sacred calendar. Um, mm-hmm. There's a day, uh, two rabbit, actually. Uh, if you're born on two rabbit, you were just, got, you're destined to be a drunkard. Um, there's nothing you could do about it. Uh, so you might as well just give it. Well, I mean, even if you go and try and seek care for it, it's not going to change, right? That that's their perception. Um, and the uh, religious um, institutions who are coming in during this time are up against also this idea that um, your afterlife um, in, in kind of broader Aztec mythology um, was not prescribed based on how you lived your life, but actually how you died. So if you died in battle, if you died in childbirth, you actually went to the same after uh, world. Um, if you died drowning, you went to a separate after under underworld. It's not under or above. It's a, another place you go. Um uh, me and my partner's favorite one is um, for infants who were not weaned. Um, they go to a place called Chichihualcualco, which is um, a, a tree full of breasts. And they just continually suckle breasts for all Aww. of their afterlife. That's, re- that's really a nice <laughs> idea. I like that. Like, yeah. So they'd never tasted corn, basically. Um so, you know, this idea of caring and caring for bodies and caring for spirits and caring for a population that is under the constant psychological anxiety and fear of another disease epidemic and people around you are dying and you don't know why they're dying. You don't know if you'll be next. Um, going to this hospital might have been that type of care, right? Um, there's a lot of other reasons why someone might want to go and seek care that we don't want to think about, um, we don't want to talk about. And I actually just yesterday finished an abstract for a paper that I'm going to present at the AAAs in November about this, about sensational experiences in, in the past and how we can add emotions and sensations um, or how we should in- include those in our interpretations. Yeah. Did you go to the, the panel? I think it was the SEAs in Vancouver. So, so last year, it was called Archaeologies of the Heart. Oh. It, it was interesting. It was kind of all about putting emotion back into archaeology and not just looking at like structural forces that may have caused something to happen, but are there emotional causal factors? Um, you know, along the same lines of considering causal factors, like was it just easier? Was someone lazy? Does have to be ritual or significant? Mm-hmm. Or you know, it's all ritual, Chelsea. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, on that note, one of the things that pardon me, um, that I'm interested in is just how um environmental change and I may or may not be able to actually address this at all in my thesis, but how environmental change affected people emotionally. 
um, mm-hmm. going through the the Pleistocene Holocene transition, and you have an attachment to place, and it no longer is the place that it was once was. How did that affect people and their attachments? Um, that's sure. very similarly like embodied. It's it's hard to relate from Western society. Um, you know, it, it's hard to talk to people enough about like the importance of preserving a place like a building <laughs> or a yeah. baseball field or something, let alone like a landscape that, you know, you and your ancestors. It's something that that most Americans can't relate to. Most um, non-Native um, Americans have a hard time relating to. So it's um, I think when we get into discussions of things like embodiment and trying to to, to talk about how people were feeling in the past in a, a both a physical and emotional sense it's it's not necessarily that it's lost on people but it's it's an even farther reach I think for the general populace but at the same time it's like you have to pull at the heartstrings to get people Mm -hmm. sometimes (laughs) although I think it can be a stretch for even just archaeologists because I think there's so much pushback from you know hardcore you know archaeology is a science and emotion isn't scientific and that type Um, of business (laughs) But it is. There's a whole science based around it. And so it's just it's it's interesting. So I can imagine not only is there pushback from the public, you get pushback from the discipline as well. That's like, oh yeah, that's too postmodern mm-hmm. for me, you know. And it's like it's not. Yeah. It's it's uh, just a different way of looking at things. But yeah, I can. Yeah, the hardcore processualists. <laughs> well, but that's you know from from people who believe that science is objective, mm-hmm. and I'm I'm very much a product of my UC Berkeley training. <laughs> Um, a post-processual training mm-hmm. that you come from a specific standpoint and that is going to always be influencing the, the data that you record and, and no science is objective. Mm-hmm. Um, and to believe that there's no motion in the past or the present, the emotions that you go through as a scholar and as a researcher are as equally valid as oh, yeah. well. Um and so, you know, I, I had um, uh, Ruth Tringham on my committee who oh, you know, uh, article, um, the faceless blobs will forever be, you know, <laughs> um, naming the faceless blobs. Now, I'm, you know, in addition to naming them, I'm giving them emotions. That's kind of how I'm thinking about it lately. Um, real people mm-hmm. who lived real lives. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's an important part of archaeology broadly is realizing that we are talking about people mm-hmm. and, and their real lives um we are approaching the end of the episode so if anyone has any final thoughts they just have to get off their chest uh, now's, now's your time i just want to thank julie for joining us this evening i mean i think you've brought some really unique insight into for our, our listeners for for me on looking at emotion and care and sex and gender. It's like you hit all the really cool, interesting things you could talk about with archaeology and bioarchaeology. So thank you so much for joining us. Yes, I would like to to mirror that in what I said uh, on the break as well is just you know, a lot of these topics that you're studying and that you, you have uh, sort of under your belt and that you're pursuing are, are things that I've been interested in for a long time. Um, and just due to circumstance, ended up going down a different path with, you know, some some similar theoretical bends. But um, it's good to see someone actually uh, pursuing the the cool things, as as Emily mm-hmm. noted. <laughs> yeah, keep keep doing what you're doing. You're cool. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
Thank you. And, you know, I think for listeners, um, Rosemary Joyce's book on the body also and bodies and, and lives in the past is another really great place to look and, and has been really influential in my work. Um, but I, I just want to say thank you for giving me this opportunity. And um, I hope that more people will uh, start thinking about archaeology in, in this kind of way. And that you'll 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 hear more and more people talking about real real people in the past for yeah. sure. And again, thank you so much for for coming on, Julie. It's been absolutely phenomenal, really interesting to talk and learn from you as always. For our listeners, if you have any questions um, for us, you can always email us at womeninarchaeology at gmail or find us on Twitter at womenarchies. And until next time, have a good one. Bye. Bye.